London, England, 1852. A man named William Booth was gripped by concern for the poor, the homeless, the destitute. And he decided to give his life to serving what Jesus called the least of these. And he began a ministry, an evangelistic ministry, that later came to be known as the Salvation Army. And when William Booth started this, inevitably people saw what was happening and they wanted to be a part of it. And over the first 10 years, hundreds of people came to volunteer, to to be co-laborers with Booth, and it just exploded. Well, 1912, William Booth was on his deathbed, and there was an international convention of the thousands of people who worked for Salvation Army. They were all getting together, and William Booth was supposed to give the main address, but he was sick. And so from his deathbed, he sent one last message. It was a one-word telegram to be read out loud at this convention for all these people. Only one word. And this is what he said. Others. Others. In many ways, this is still the heartbeat of the Salvation Army and the legacy of William Booth. I mean, the last hundred years, they've influenced millions of people in over a hundred countries. Now, I I want you to think for a moment about your own life. And if there had to be one word that would characterize you and your legacy after you're gone, what would it be? You had a one-word telegram that would go out and touch the world, and that's how you'd be remembered. What would you want it to be? And I don't know what comes into your mind. For me, it's hard to think of a better word than this. Others. Because I think, man, I want my life to benefit other people. I, you know, by God's grace, I want my family, my friends, my church, my neighborhood, my community to be better because of my Life for other people to benefit. And I think that most of you today, if not all of us, we have that desire. But the reality is that for many people in our world today, the way that we live, the way that we leave, it's not with the word others being the lasting imprint. For many people, the way that we leave, if you had to you know, characterize our lives after we're gone, it's this word. It's, it's the word me. That we live wrapped around our own self-interest, that we leverage, we use our time, talent, resources, relationships, ultimately in service of ourselves. Now, when I say that and I, in a negative way, I say, me, I'm not talking about healthy self-care, where you value the person that God made you to be because it's out of that person that you serve other people. I think that's true, biblically. And I'm not saying that others and me are incompatible with one another. I think that as we have a healthy relationship with God and with ourselves, we're able to love and serve other people. When I say me, and and that being the one word that kind of characterizes our lives after we're gone, I'm talking about a, a narcissistic orientation where... We, our self-focus, it minimizes and devalues other people. We can live that way, and none of us want that. And I'm not even saying it. I'm not reflecting on this idea in a judgmental way. Please hear me. I mean, there are many days where my head hits the pillow, and if I reflect and I'm honest, I'd say, you know, a lot of today was completely about me. 
I didn't care for other people. I, this past weekend, yesterday, I was reflecting on a conversation I had this past week and how I was not present at all to that person. I did not love them. I was preoccupied with my own self-interest. I was impatient. So this is not something that I'm saying, oh, there's all these people who just think about me. We, I think about me, and that characterizes a lot of how I live. And, and so if that's true for us, even followers of Jesus, that we don't automatically wake up in the morning and we just live for other people, then let me ask us today, how can we grow? How can we change? How can we become not just healthy in our relationship with ourselves, but, 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 but passionate about serving and loving other people to where the, the, the word that emanates from your life is the word others? How can we move towards that by God's grace? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. You know, the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, the author is really exploring who Jesus is. And then there's a shift, and beginning in Mark 9, the Gospel of Mark is really about what Jesus is going to do. He's going to die on the cross. And he tells his disciples this three times. And every time they resist, they misunderstand, they try to rebuke Jesus, they don't absorb that truth. And the third time this happens is in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus tells them about his death and they just can't have it and they don't receive it. But it's in that exchange that Jesus gives us such a powerful perspective and challenge that I really believe for us today is explosive, what Jesus says. So beginning in Mark 10, verse 35, we read this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that great? <laughs> you know as a parent, if, if a request begins this way, it's a bad request. Dad, we just want you to say yes before we tell you what happened. But, but incredibly, Jesus graciously, this is what he says, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, to their credit, these guys, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And they believed, wrongly, that he was about to establish his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. Jesus would not take the throne, at least not in the way they imagined but, but they imagined this earthly kingdom launching, and they said, Jesus, we want to be in the positions of power in the, in the new kingdom. To be at your right in that culture was the highest position of power. We want to be at your right and at your left. Now, not only is their, their request presumptuous, it's also misguided because Jesus is not going into Jerusalem to take the throne. Again, Jesus is going to die. And he's already told them that. And so Jesus, he answers them in a way that points them back to what he's already said. Look at what Jesus says. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now the cup in the Old Testament is a symbol of trouble and suffering. 
And likewise, the, you know, being baptized in the Old Testament as an image, being underwater, it's a, it's a picture of being overwhelmed with trouble. And Jesus says, can you endure the suffering that I'm going to endure? And in one of the most classic, most arrogant responses in the whole Bible, the disciples, they say this, we can. We think we can. And Jesus, incredibly, he doesn't just shut them down, but he, he explains to them, he says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Now, he's pr prophetically speaking here, Jesus, because he knows that they are going to suffer because of their connection to Christ, their connection to him. James would be the first Christian martyr of the disciples. John would be persecuted. And Jesus, he says, you are going to suffer. But then he goes on and he says, but to sit at my right or my or left is not for me to grant. And me here in the Greek is emphatic. Jesus says, it's not up to me. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In other words, he says to these disciples, and God says to us through this verse today, God decides who how and when we are exalted. Such a powerful principle here. Jesus is a complete trust, resting in the Father. Says, he is the one who decides. I remember years ago as a young, ambitiously, I know I'm still young. Some of you are thinking, you're so young still. But as an ambitious leader in ministry, I remember just feeling this ambition and wanting to lead. And I, I remember one mentor, he said to me, one time he said, God knows your address. In other words, Matt, be faithful where you are. Be present. Serve in the way that God has provided for you to serve. And if and when you will be promoted to a different role, God knows that. And he knows your address. I still think about that. Some of you might need to hear that today that God is the one who raises up authority. Now, he goes on, the text goes on, and it, it says this, and it's, it's so interesting. The ten, you know, they heard it, and they became indignant. And that word, they're, you know, displeased, afflicted. They're ticked off. And Jesus, he sees this, and he's like, this is such a teachable moment again. So Jesus, he calls them all together. He brings the disciples together. And he says this, to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus says, you know how power is expressed in your culture. You see it. You see these leaders exercising authority over and then he says this, but not so with you. Underline that sentence in your Bible. Not so with you. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not just going to give you a, an adjustment on how the world does leadership and power. I'm going to give you a whole different orientation. That the kingdom of God is fundamentally a different economy. Not so with you. You don't lead like the world. And then he says this, instead, 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, it's easy to miss the force of this. If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard these verses, and so it's easy for us to just lose sight of how revolutionary this idea was. A couple of weeks ago, I was leaving the church, and I went out a side door trying to save some time to the parking lot. And little did I know that that day, somebody on our facilities team had set a sprinkler on the little patch of grass right beside this door. And it was one of those sprinklers that rotates, and it, and it covers a, a pretty big area. Well, it just so happened, as I was exiting the building, this thing was perfectly positioned to hit me in the face. <laughs> and I exited the building and got a face full of sprinkler water, just stunned. And you wipe your face off and you see, did anybody, anybody notice? Nobody noticed, right? For these disciples, hearing Jesus say this, it would be like a face full of sprinkler water. This was explosive. Nobody wanted to be a slave. We tend to think about slavery as racially based and involving bondage against someone's will, and it wasn't that way in the first century. But still, nobody wanted to be a slave. If you were a slave, you wanted to be free. And if you were free, you were glad you weren't a slave. And Jesus says, the people who want to be great choose to be a slave. And then Jesus grounds that principle in his own example. Look at verse 45. Jesus, he says this. He says, for even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Scholars agree that that this verse, Mark 10, 45, is the purpose statement of the book, that this whole book is about this idea, that Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whenever a leader is running for office, Oftentimes, they will have a statement or an idea that sums up what they're about. And it's really a plea to the people who might vote for them to say, this is what I'm about. Read my lips, no new taxes. 1988, George Bush. This is what I'm about. You can count on this. And a lot of times, we refer to that as somebody's platform. It's what they're about. It's what you can expect. Well, this is Jesus' platform. I don't want to make too much of this, but but if you look at Jesus, and in one sentence, you have to see this is what Jesus is about, and this is what we can expect if we want to follow him, it's this verse. It's this idea. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you had to distill that into a few words, it would be simply this. Jesus is saying to anybody who wants to follow him, seek not to be served but to serve. He says, that's what I'm about. And if you claim the name of Christ, if you're a follower of mine, this is what you are to be about too. Now, again, I just want to pause and just recognize how radically counter-cultural this is. The spirit of our age, this is true in the first century, but it's, it's true today, the spirit of our age is seek to serve yourself. Seek to be served. We 
idolize and we praise and we prize people in life who've gotten to a place, you know, financially or other that, that, that they can be served. And, and we say, wow, that is what we want to be. That's what I aspire to be. And Jesus completely flips it. This is radical. And I, I found myself thinking this week, how can we even get this and absorb it into our lives? This takes a lifetime. This takes a lifetime to learn how to serve others and not seek to be served. So what do we do with this today? Well, what I want to put before us today are three shifts, three applications that we can make out of this today as we try to lean into this and become people who resemble Jesus who came not to be served but to serve, and he defines service by giving his life as a ransom for many. The, the, the first invitation or the shift that I think this is inviting us to today is to reject the world's way of pursuing greatness. Reject the world's way of pursuing greatness. Verse 43, Jesus, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus, he doesn't rebuke these guys for wanting to be great. He doesn't say, how dare you want to be great? He doesn't say that. What he says is, the way that you guys are thinking about greatness and pursuing greatness is so totally different than what it should be. In verse 37, it says, James and John, they come to Jesus. But it's interesting, in Matthew's account, it actually records this request coming from their mother. And that's probably what happened. Mark, he puts this request in their mouths because it came from their hearts. But more than likely, James and John said, hey, mom, will you go ask Jesus for this? Now, when we hear that, we think that is so weird. And, you know, why would they do that? But we forget the family connection, that James and John were cousins of Jesus. James and John's mom was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So when you think about this, it's, not, it's really smart. Because who wants to say no to their aunt for anything, right? So it's like, hey, mom, go talk to Jesus. So she goes and says, hey, nephew Jesus, I remember you when you were a little baby. Hey, do me a favor. Make sure my boys, your cousins, get taken care of in the new kingdom. And I think the reason the other disciples are mad is not because... James and John, how dare you do this? I think that they're mad because they didn't have that same connection. They didn't have that leverage or they would have done that too. And, and what James and John are doing by using their leverage, it's exactly what we do too in our world today. You know, we are taught subconsciously from the moment we're born. We, we are brought up in this world to, to use our talent, relationships, and opportunities to help us get what we want. Now, it's not always selfish. A lot of times we can have motives to help others, but we use whatever we got to help accomplish our goals. And this is so inside of us, it's, it's largely unconscious. We associate with people who have something to offer us. How many of us go into a room and you don't even know you're doing it? 
but you're sizing people up and you're realizing, okay, this person's popular, so if I associate with them, it comes off on me in a positive way. We, we, we size people up. People will say, hey, can you do me a favor? And we're like, yeah. And inside, part of us is like, yes. Because now if I need a favor, I know who to ask. We, we interact with people and we present ourselves a certain way because we want to be perceived by them. So we kind of promote ourselves. We hide parts of us that, that aren't as attractive or you know, parts of us that are ugly this is what social media is. You know, we put ourselves out there. Even when I preach a sermon, I, I am tempted to try to portray myself in a certain way for you to think of me in a certain way. I mean, this is just inside of us, this desire to elevate ourselves. And Jesus calls his followers to a fundamentally different posture. He says, lay down that whole thing. What Jesus calls us to is nothing less than saying everything you have, your relationships, your talent, your resources, your opportunities, use that, leverage that to serve other people. Let me put it this way. The world's pathway to greatness is self-promotion. God's pathway to greatness is suffering and service. That is so different. So part of what we need to hear today is, okay, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to become more of a, of a servant, I have to reject the world's way of pursuing greatness. And I have to define it the way God does, which pursuing greatness is about suffering and service for the good of others. Now, the second invitation in this text today is not just reject the world's way of pursuing greatness, but reject the world's definition of success. The way to pursue greatness in the economy of God is suffering and service. And the ultimate example, who's the ultimate example? It's, it's Jesus who served and gave his life. Therefore, Jesus is the example. He is the success story. He's the one we strive to be like, right? I want you to just think about Jesus for a moment. He's born in Bethlehem in a cave Welcomed into the world by shepherds, the lowest you could be on the totem pole. He flees to Egypt early in his life. He's a refugee. He comes back to Nazareth. He lives in grinding poverty, most likely, in Nazareth. Eventually, he begins his ministry, and the people around him, his closest followers, are uneducated fishermen with major character defects. And then Jesus, at different points in his ministry, he has a big following. But in the end, in the end, everybody walks away from him. And he dies on a criminal's cross. And even his last possession is taken away from him, his cloak. He owns nothing. And he's buried in a borrowed tomb. Now, if you, if you asked anybody in the first century about Jesus, would anybody say that guy is a success? No, he's the opposite. And yet, Jesus was being faithful to what God called him to do, and he was a success. And so the, the, the point here is that the way, our, our paradigm for determining somebody's success is so different than God's paradigm. I love Luke 16, 15. This is such a powerful statement. Jesus, he says, 
What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Just think about that for a moment. That's a strong statement. Detestable in God's sight. That there's things about the way we think about success in our world today that Jesus says is detestable in God's sight. So what is success then? Well, if Mark 10.45 is our example, it's giving yourself away out of love for God and others. And again, I just want to say this isn't an emotionally unhealthy thing where you never think about yourself ever. I think that there's a, a healthy, I receive the love of God, and from that and knowing myself, I'm a conduit of that to other people, but I give my life away. That is success. Do we believe that? Do you believe that today? I mean, how many of us parents, we would rather, let's be honest, we would rather our children grow up to be successful, the way we think about it, financially independent, married, two beautiful kids with an awesome white house with a picket fence and, and just kind of this idyllic image. But in that scenario, let me just put this before us, maybe in that scenario their, their spiritual lives are kind of shallow and self-absorbed. Or would we rather have our children struggling trying to find a job and in and out of relationships and financially dependent and all those things, and yet at the same time, they have a meaningful, deep relationship with Jesus and they serve other people. Which one would we rather have? And I'm not saying any of those things are bad or that they, they, they can't correlate. I'm not saying that, but my point is, oftentimes our values, my values, need realignment. And if this text is true, then we've got to look at success in our world today and say, no, no. Our vision for success as followers of Jesus has to be fundamentally different. And so we reject the world's definition of success. And then thirdly, the, the third invitation for us today, it's this, it's embrace serving as a core part of the spiritual life. If what Jesus said is what we're looking at today, then serving others cannot be a side issue. It cannot be just an add-on to your life that, that, that we need to be characterized by serving others because the path to greatness is serving. And Jesus came, our Lord and Savior and Master. He came not to be served but to serve. And so we have to shift our values. I, I remember when I started drinking coffee. I was 30 years old. And I thought coffee was gross before then. And even then, I did for a little while. Why did I start drinking coffee? Because of Hebrew. Because I was in seminary and I was banging my head against the wall trying to learn Hebrew. It was so hard. And I had to get up early in the morning. It was the best time for me, given my family and work commitments, all that. I had to study early in the morning, and I could not learn it. I could not wake up enough to retain Hebrew. And so I started drinking coffee to just help me, jumpstart me in the morning, right? My point is, my values changed, therefore my behavior changed. My value for learning Hebrew became more important to me than my dislike of the taste of coffee, I remember 
when I started dating Katie, I was in college, and this is gross to say, but you know it's true. I mean, many of you in college, you have, you have terrible hygiene, let's be honest. And I remember I was brushing my teeth once a day, and then I started dating this girl named Katie, and I started brushing my teeth twice a day. I just don't remember that. Why? Because my values changed. My value of having better smelling breath became more important than the inconvenience of having to do that twice a day. My point is, for us, our behavior follows what we value. That's how it is. How you spend your money, your time, that, that indicates what you value. And what this text is saying, I think, for us, is not simply, hey, why don't you just think about serving? This is saying to us that serving ought to be a value for us, that it's important. Now, the way that we serve, there's a, there's a whole variety of ways that we serve. We can show hospitality to people. We can meet tangible needs. We can pray. That's a way to serve. You can serve others by teaching. Some of you are gifted administratively. You're leaders. You can, you can serve by leading people well. So there's so many ways to serve. And listen, serving includes the local church, but it's bigger than that. You know, some of you, I mean, all of you moms and stay-at-home moms and all of you parents, you serve in a major significant way. You serve your children. Some of you, you coach soccer, and you are serving those kids. So serving is way bigger than the local church, but it includes the local church too. And so... I do want to share with you, there are so many ways in the community of GFC that you can serve. In hospitality, and student ministry, and young adults, and kids ministry, and groups. There's so many different ways that you can serve. And, you know, I'm up here and you're like, well, you're a church guy and, you're, you know, you're promoting this. Listen, it's, it's less biblically. It is less about the how you serve and more about whether you serve or not. That's, that's the important thing, that we all need environments where we are serving other people. And so maybe for you that's at GFC, maybe it's somewhere else, but all of us, we need to serve. Philip Yancey, he, he tells a great story of a Frenchman named Pierre who served in Parliament until he was disillusioned about the slow pace of change. And, and so... He, he saw how many beggars in Paris were freezing, and he said, I'm going to give my life to that. And he, he helped these beggars, and his method was extraordinary. He had them help each other. He required every single beggar to help somebody else who was more needy, more desperate than themselves. And over time, this, this worked in an incredible way, and there were fewer and fewer beggars left in Paris to the point where he began to be concerned and he said, I've got to find people that we can serve. And so he went to India to try to figure out if there's a way that they could serve people in India. And this is what he said. I think this is so fascinating. He said, if I don't find people worse off than my beggars, then this whole thing could turn inward. They will, we will become a powerful, rich organization, and the whole spiritual impact will be lost because we'll have no one to serve. And he discovered a leprosy colony in India. He mobilized his people to go and help that need. And they, they started a, a, a leprosy ward at a hospital in India. 
And this is what he said to the patients in India. He said, it is you, the, the lepers, and it is you who have saved us because we must serve or we die. There are some things that we cannot learn any other way than when we serve. And if this text is going to bear weight on us today, I believe we've got to say, am I prioritizing that in my life? Am I putting myself in environments where I'm there as a servant? You know, Kenneth Boa, he says, in the Christian community, everybody wants to be called a servant, but nobody wants to be treated like one. And I found myself this week thinking, where in my life am I putting myself in an environment where I am treated like a servant? Because we need that. I need that. We will grow shallow and self-absorbed without that. So this text, again, it's inviting us to embrace serving as a critical part of our spiritual lives. The where and the what, that is less important than the how, than the if, the whether or not we're doing it. Because this is so critical. Again. So Jesus invites us, you and I, to, to seek to not be served, but to serve. What would that look like for you to respond today? How, how do you apply this to your life? Where might God be inviting you today to a new perspective on greatness or on success? Where might God be inviting you to lay down your ego to be treated as a servant? Another quote I read this week, a pastor, he said, I'm convinced that you don't really know a person until they don't get their way. And then you see the person. And I thought, wow, that's true. Is my life organized in such a way where I always get my way? I'm never treated as a servant. And some of us today, it's, man, lay down that pride, that control, and enter into something that maybe you feel like you have no competency to do. You're, you're holding babies down in Grace Kids, or you're doing something outside the walls of this church that you're saying, God, I'm just here as a servant. And how might God be inviting you to value that? Not to just do it out of guilt, but to say, God, would you help me like Jesus to value this more? Now, it's interesting, at the end of the gospel accounts, there are two basins. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, we're told that he knelt down on the floor, he, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he washed the feet of his disciples, including Judas, the one who would betray him. Jesus, he washed the feet of the disciples in a basin. A few hours later, we're told that Pontius Pilate, who was governor presiding over the trial of Jesus, when the crowds cried, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate, he, he knew that Jesus was innocent, but he didn't want to displease the mob, and so he gave in to them and said, yeah, Jesus will be crucified. And we're told that Pilate washed his hands in a basin. He said, Jesus' blood is not on my hands. See, Jesus used his power to serve others. Pilate used his power to serve himself. 
And I think that the question before all of us today is, which will you choose? And it's not a one-time choice. It is a daily choice. Will you choose to use whatever God has given you, however little, however much God has given you, will you choose to use that to serve others or yourself? Will the word that emanates out of your life at the end of the day, will it be the word others or will it be the word me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and your love. Lord, it is unbelievable to just fathom that the God who who made the heavens and the sea, who knows every hair on our head, you came in the form of Jesus and he got down on the floor. He was born in the dirt and he served the, the disciples, prideful, arrogant, just like us. And Lord, all of us today, we are people who have been served by Jesus because he gave his life as a ransom for many. So would you help us, Lord, to feel the weight of that and to respond and give us the wisdom to know what that looks like. Lord, to just take a step, to just say, God, I'm gonna open myself up to to you in in a new way, in a different way. Would you help form us to be the kind of people who see greatness and see success the way that you do. And we need your help. We pray for the world that we live in, God, that that our neighbors and coworkers and the other businesses in the city and Lord, everyone around us would experience, would see us as seeking to serve. Show us what that means. So we respond to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.